0: It's the 11th of June, 2016, and this is episode 296. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, it's Andreas and Stephanie for part two of last week's conversation. This time they talk Ethereum and the Dow. We join their conversation, already in progress.
1: In my mind, and a lot of people disagree with me, there's a lot of maximalists on both sides who are like, uh, Bitcoin is shit, Ethereum is all it's about, and Ethereum is shit. Bitcoin's Bitcoin is all it's about. And I really don't see them as direct competitors. I see them as occupying two different niches. Bitcoin is uh, sound money with very simple, robust scripting and a very specific monetary policy that gives it these characteristics. And a much more conservative currency, from from the perspective of Ethereum, at least. And Ethereum is, is a smart contracts platform, which is much more diverse and flexible, but at the expense of being much more complex and and less scalable than Bitcoin. So, you know, you look at these two and you say, are they competitors? They're, they do different things. The analogy I've used is the one is a shark and the other is a lion. They're both top species, but you know, they're they're unlikely to find an arena where they can both be top species. Uh, And if you're on land, one of them's, uh, you know, out of its depth. (laughs) I I can see that. Absolutely. So.
2: All right. Tell me your take on the DAO and Ethereum. I know maybe we've sort of said that the, the narrative is shall we say, less focused on the technology and more focused on things like how it can make people a lot of money or something like that. But what excites you about Ethereum coming up in the next year or a couple of years and and about the DAO?
1: I've said from the day Ethereum came out. In fact, um, I got the white paper as a preview before it came out. But I was excited from day one. And I'm excited because I think the opportunity to create decentralized applications on a very flexible smart contract programming language is enormous. And so I'm fascinated by Ethereum. I've been using Ethereum. I've been writing contracts in Ethereum since the day it came out. In every language that has come out for Ethereum, I've written code in in Serpent, LLL, CLL, uh, and more recently, of course, Solidity. I've used it. Um, I've studied it and I read about it constantly and I'm very interested in it. I think Ethereum has a lot of the kind of sexiness of something that is new and different. And sometimes I think people are so kind of blinded by that newness that they're much more willing to overlook some of the potential problems. So they persuade themselves that, you know, because it's so shiny and new, it doesn't have the governance issues or the scaling issues that bitcoin has and not only does it not have them it will never have them
2: so what do you see as the potential problems let's talk about those
1: well I, i don't want to sound like i'm bashing Ethereum. i think
2: well you won't you just said you're so excited about it i mean i don't think anyone will think you're bashing it if you offer some potential things that could be well could be problems if anything it's constructive feedback right
1: Well, I mean, let me give you one example. Um, People who say, I'm going to Ethereum because Bitcoin can't scale. I mean, that's a really funny statement to make, because Ethereum has the same kind of global transmission uh, of consensus transactions, the global consensus layer, where Everybody sees every transaction, everybody verifies every transaction, which is at the root of the scaling issue with Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. Only the difference is that in Ethereum, contracts also have both code and state, and state means variables, memory, data.
2: Okay, yeah. Uh,
1: Which means that... Which takes up a lot of space. Which takes up a lot of space. So Ethereum's scaling issue is at least 10 times bigger than Bitcoin's. Now, mm-hmm. not, not yet, but Ethereum, after how many months now, is already in the, uh, I think, 12 gig size for the blockchain. Mm-hmm. It, it took a long time for Bitcoin to get to 12 gig. Years, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, eth- Ethereum got there a lot faster. Right. And, and so, you know, Ethereum people will say, yes, but we have solutions, we're going to do X, Y, Z, we're going to do sharding, we're going to do this, that, and the other. And, and that's great. But of course, if, you, if these solutions are effective, there's no reason why you can't apply those same solutions to Bitcoin. So this is a two-way street. Ethereum gets to avoid some of the mistakes that Bitcoin made. But then Ethereum makes its own mistakes that are, are different, perhaps. And uh, on the other hand, um, Ethereum gets to benefit from all of the innovations that Bitcoin introduced. But it also works the other way around. If Ethereum solves some scaling issues by creating a sharding solution for consensus algorithms, great, we can use that in Bitcoin. If Ethereum manages to make a transition to proof of stake effectively and proves that consensus algorithm at scale, great, then we can use that in Bitcoin, too. So I I really I'm I'm much more skeptical of this idea that, oh, I'm leaving Bitcoin because it has problems. So I'm going to Ethereum because it doesn't have problems.
2: Right. That just sounds like the classic grass is greener, you know, dilemma on the other side. Right. Everything has its own issues.
1: Different issues, perhaps not the same.
2: Right. It's a different thing. Like you said, it's a lion, not a shark or
1: shark, not a lion. I'm curious, what is the sharding thing? Tell me more about that. Sharding is an expression that comes from databases. Basically what that is, is instead of running a complete replica everywhere, uh, what you do is you run subsets of that global replica. As a node, maybe my node is only verifying a deterministic subset of the total transactions and keeps a deterministic subset of of the... parts of the blockchain that it cares about. So th- think of it this way, um, it's, it's how BitTorrent works, it distributed hash tables work, but think of it as, I'm gonna keep all transactions that start uh, with the letters A through F, and, and you have the ones that are P through Z or whatever. And then if, if I'm looking for a transaction, I know who to ask depending on which subset they have. I mean, th- that's a very simplified explanation. But what you do is you say, well, we won't all have everything and verify everything. Um, We'll break it to shards, which is what's called sharding. And these shards, anyone can kind of recompose the whole out of the shards, but everybody only needs to focus on their own shard in order to have consistency. Which is a fantastic idea. How do you do that while maintaining consensus and byzantine fault tolerance on its decentralized system without causing centralization or single points of failure now that's a hairy question and if you have an answer for that great i'm going to take that answer and apply it to bitcoin it's it's not as simply as just saying the word charting the same thing applies to proof of stake it's not as simple as saying that but that doesn't mean i'm not optimistic i'm enormously optimistic i think Ethereum has a set of applications and use cases that is fascinating and for which there will be uh, a lot of investment to help solve all of of these issues. And, And of course, you know, there will be choices. Some of these choices will be hard. Some of these choices will be contentious. And these contentious choices will lead inevitably to governance disputes within Ethereum as much as they did in Bitcoin. You know, we didn't have any governance problems in 2013 or 2014. No, nobody had a governance problem in Bitcoin in 2014. What we had then was a difficulty finding enough funds to fund core development. Yeah. Now we have Blockstream funding core development, and somehow uh, that's become kind of the center of all conspiracy theories of evil. <laughs> um, we solve one problem only for it to become a different kind of problem. And, and of course, that is the nature of a d- dynamic system, right? You solve one problem only to create other problems.
2: Absolutely. That's the nature of any company, even not that Bitcoin is a company, really. It's, it's something different, but that's the nature of any big project, right? There's always going to be challenges. And as you solve one, more come up. So roll with it, relax.
1: <laughs> right. And, and I, I think my primary role in the Bitcoin community for the last um, four years has been to be the chief, hey, relax officer. Um, (laughs) I like that. Right. Uh, Because, again, you know, if you listen to all of the noise, this can get really depressing really fast. There's a lot of interest and a lot of people who have every reason to pretend that Bitcoin problems are unsolvable or that it's fatally flawed because it's profitable for them to make that claim. And because they can then appear to be the solution that solves that problem. And, and so there's a lot of that noise, a lot of concern trolling, uh, as we would call it in traditional sense. But you have to ignore that and, and really look at the technology fundamentals and the technology fundamentals for Bitcoin. For someone like me who is interested in the technology, I mean, they've never been better. This is, this is the most exciting time as a technologist to be involved in Bitcoin is right now.
2: That's great. And it's always been right now. Right? Until tomorrow. <laughs> <exciting>. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I
2: think that's the attitude you've maintained all along. So, okay, well, that's cool. I feel better after talking to you about that, Andreas. Thank you for your perspective. But we should also talk about the DAO. Have yeah, you been paying like attention to, talk to them? i about that. I, so I have a little bit, give me your elevator pitch or summary about what exactly it is and what it's supposed to
1: do. Well... That's a that's a bit of a difficult explanation because nobody yet knows what it is or what it's supposed to do.
2: That's kind of the impression that I got. I mean, I here I've heard a lot of people talking about it and it seems like they're using
1: a lot of words, but like they're not I'm not entirely getting the point. I, I can tell you what it is today and then we can talk about it. I think that's the most interesting thing about the Dow is that yeah. it it is a true example of an emergent system. So the DAO, at it's very basic, is, is an Ethereum smart contract. It's a program written in Ethereum in Solidity, which is the Ethereum programming language, or one of the Ethereum programming languages. And it's a program that executes on Ethereum. Think of it as running on the entire Ethereum network for simple terms. And that program is, I don't know, like six, 700 lines of code. And you okay, can go and b- as
2: a non-coder, is that big, small, medium for a program?
1: It's pretty small. It's pretty okay. small. And you can go read it, and it's fairly easy to read. If, if you're interested, uh, github.com slash slock.it, slockit. Uh, it's the company that uh, designed this. Um, it, it stands for smart Lockit. slockit slash DAO. And if you go into that repository, you can look at the code and uh, DAO.SOL is the Solidity code that runs the DAO. So basically, someone wrote this code and then this code creates a smart contract that has a governance structure, which means that it, it has two phases. The first one is the creation phase. And during the creation phase, it's really in a fundraiser, kind of like a Kickstarter. And during that phase, you can send money. And if you send money, In the form of Ethereum, it will exchange that at a specified rate of 100 to 1, if I'm not mistaken, to tokens. And these are just DAO tokens. And then you can use these DAO tokens to vote uh, in the future for proposals. And so first phase, it raises money. And then in about, um, I think it's 39 hours from now, in fact, the creation phase clock runs out and then it goes live and when it goes live you can submit a proposal to this thing and a proposal being another ethereum contract or ethereum program you put a document with it that says i want to use this money to build a spaceship that's going to go to mars and for that i want a million dollars and then people can read that proposal and um then they can vote and if enough people vote, then the DAO basically transfers that money to your proposal program. And then you can use that to build a spaceship to Mars. And so people can submit proposals for funding. Think of it like a community-run Kickstarter platform or a, a venture fund with 25,000 managing partners who all have a vote or an investment company with 25,000 voting shareholders. And of course, you vote by the proportion of the tokens you have. So if you have 10 DAO tokens, then that counts as 10 DAO tokens vote. And somebody who has 100 has 10 times the voting power that you do. And there's various rules about what the quorum is, depending on how much money the proposal wants and percentages of this and that. But that's basically it. It's, It's that. Now... Slockit wrote it to crowdfund their own thing. But then when they wrote it and launched it, uh, or someone launched it, it took on a life on its own because while it's widely expected that Slockit will submit a proposal, there's no obligation for anyone to vote for that proposal. There's no obligation for anyone to use it just to fund Slockit. People can vote for whatever they want. Uh, we don't know who the voters are. and We don't know what they will want to vote for. And so it It went from something that they built to raise half a million dollars to something that now has a fund of close to one hundred and fifty million dollars and twenty five thousand voting members who have twenty five thousand minds of their own. Uh, I've used a new word to describe this, which is not crowdfunding, mosh founding.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) I can see that because it seems like it, it could certainly be subject to the whims of the
1: investors or initial funders or whatever. And, and not only that, but you can actually watch that conversation unfold in these forums and um, reddits where people are saying, I'm going to vote for this, but not for that. And my investment style is frugal and my investment style is this. And uh, I don't have an investment style. I'm going to be rich, rich. Uh, you know, it's, it's a mob. It's a complete mosh pit.
2: Yeah. And it seems like it could potentially go in any direction. Like, right. It's it's sort of a tool to enable projects to happen. It's a governance structure, but it doesn't really have like a specific mission other than that. Right. It could be used for all kinds of different things. It's
1: a chaocracy. It's a MOSH funding (laughs) system. It's fantastic. It's. Are you like
2: a little scared about what could happen from this? (laughs) like does it become tay you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm fascinated and slightly terrified and then even more fascinated because this could go anyway it sure could it's a proof of concept right and people are going to watch this very carefully to decide what could these things do in the future could you build a hostile takeover DAO that decides to go out and buy a majority share ownership in Comcast and change the way that company works? Why the hell not? There you go. Giving people ideas. Andreas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> re- re- it redefi- First of all, I, one of the things that I like about this is it redefines the concept of an accredited investor. In the US, at least, if you want to invest in companies outside of the stock market, just directly invest into companies making some kind of offering to the public. You can't do that. They either need to offer shares to the public through a stock market under SEC rules with brokers and stock exchanges, etc., with very very strict rules by the SEC, or they can offer they can make a private offering in which only accredited investors can participate. And basically, to be an accredited investor, you need to have only one qualification: a, a ton of money. Air. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so this is to keep the mob out. Well, this flips it on its head because the only qualification you need here is the ability to figure out a way to get your hands on some E. Which is interesting because that's a, that's a technical qualification. If you can figure out how to get Ether, then you can figure out how to get DAO tokens, then you are an accredited investor in this scheme. It redefines mm-hmm. that completely. And then what does that mean? Because it's completely borderless and international. Um, It requires no other qualification, um, and it opens the door for a very grassroots kind of uh, investor activism, which could take any kind of form. Within the mechanism of the DAO, there's another really interesting feature, which is the ability to do a split, which means that you can essentially fragment the DAO. It's almost like a process of mitosis when a cell splits itself in two. Yes. You could fragment the DAO. Basically, you withdraw your money from that DAO and create a new DAO. And you can do that by yourself, or you can do that with a lot of the other investors. So you could see an environment where people say, you know what? We're going to fragment off. We're going to do a DAO that focuses on charity or focuses on. Who knows, right? Um, Focuses on VC funding, focuses on early stage startups, focuses on investing in the Ethereum ecosystem, focuses on political action campaigns, focuses on funding warlords in North Africa. I mean, Goldman Sachs can do it. Why can't we? Right. Then it just takes on a completely unknown trajectory. And so all we can do now is sit back, watch and watch it with fascination. I'm pretty sure there are going to be lawsuits. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are going to be things. I've participated. It's funny,
2: though, to think about someone filing a lawsuit against this thing because it's not like something you can sue. Like, you can't, it's like an animal. You can't. Oh, no, you'd sue the
1: people. You'd sue the people.
2: The people who voted for it or funded it? All
1: of them. Which which people? How are you going to know who that is, though? (laughs) Any person you can find their identity um, who has voted for it, or any person who has received money, or any company that has received money that you can identify, you can sue. Of course, you can sue anyone you want, right? Whether you have standing, whether it's a valid lawsuit, those are all other questions. I'm participating in a proposal to the DAO. We're not... Yet, sure, if we're going to fi- file it really as a funding proposal to the DAO, but we've written a, a proposal document for something called the Decentralized Arbitration and Mediation Network. Uh, and this is under a uh, company that I work with, Third Key Solutions. Is that the dam? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice clever well you know it depends on your proclivities we wanted to have a funny little name uh some people were offended Mm -hmm. by that so we suggested uh bilateral law for emergent smart systems bless or uh decentralized arbitration and reconciliation network darn um and you can keep going. (laughs) you know that's my favorite darn (laughs) depending on your sensitivity to blasphemy and uh things like that but It's a not so serious name for a very serious proposal, which kind of expresses my attitude towards work. I do very serious work with a very unserious attitude. The work is to do um, kind of create a bridge between smart contracts and legal enforcement through alternative dispute resolution systems. that are are recognized by law and and by treaty in more than 150 countries, and that are the primary means by which most commercial entities do transactions. You have an arbitration clause in almost every contract you sign with a big company. So what we're trying to do is bridge those two worlds. And we've written that as a research grant proposal, and we might actually submit it to the DAO. We haven't decided yet. It would be interesting to see, just as a matter of participating in this experiment. But in the meantime, what we did is we submitted this, the text of the proposal to the DAO community for feedback, as well as to the Ethereum and Bitcoin community. And the feedback has been really, really fascinating. In what way? Well, it's shown us that, you know, the, the split between those who want to invest only in things that have a clear and specific return on investment. So they're looking at, And really, that tells you what they see the DAO as. They see it as an investment fund or VC vehicle. And and then you see um, people who want to invest in it as a kind of infrastructure enhancement, create open source software that anyone can use that can improve the entire ecosystem, which is more of a development grant governance for the Ethereum community and ecosystem ecosystem view of the DAO and and the funny thing is about this is that of course the DAO is both of those things and neither of those things. It's whatever you think it is and weighted by the number of votes you actually have.
2: It's basically a robot. It's an AI. Yes. That's what I look at it as. Yeah. That coordinates input from a lot of actual humans.
1: Yes. That's the ironic thing about smart contracts. They conjure this idea of an AI, but I I think the best way to describe a smart contract is that it is a dumb program. (laughs) Which is the more realistic approach. A smart contract is a dumb program. It's a program written in Ethereum. And trust me, in six, seven hundred lines of code, you do not have an AI.
2: Yeah. And it's (laughs) not that smart yet. Right. Right. Exactly. However,
1: (laughs) what happens when you take simple rules and then you connect them with autonomous agents and guided by external stimulations through these actors, the voters? You get emergent complexity. This is... Uh, how ant colonies work. This is the the whole purpose of this, which means that while the code itself is is not autonomous and while the code itself is not intelligent, the thing that emerges from the combination of a very dumb, specific, tracted governance program and the interaction of 25,000 completely unqualified investor mob is is going to be fascinating to see. It's a, it's a it's a true emergent system on the internet that we've never seen before. And it it could go horribly wrong in the first hour. It could revolutionize finance and everything in between. So nobody knows.
2: <laughs> I am um I am uh I my money is is not on the beautiful wisdom of the crowds emerging. (laughs) I am feeling a
1: little bit cynical about this. (laughs) But I mean, you see, the thing is, even if it does blow up, um, and even if it blows up uh, massively and early on, it will teach us some very valuable lessons about, you can look at this as the collision of two particles. And while it creates a fireball inside your particle detector, what you then look at is the debris of that explosion to try and figure out what it's made of, right? And that's where all the physics is. It's in the debris. It's those few milliseconds as it collapses into a fireball that you study very, very carefully to gain all of the lessons. And when you're building autonomous or governance organizations like the DAO, their failure modes are just as instructive, if not much more instructive than their success modes. It could fragment into multiple DAOs, it could stay homogeneous, it could take different directions in investment strategy, it could reveal bugs. But what it is doing is it's demonstrating, first of all, one of the things you can do with Ethereum that you can't do with Bitcoin, even though I would guess that a lot of the funds that went into it came through Bitcoin, then Ethereum, (laughs) then into the DAO. So Bitcoin played a very significant role in there even regardless. Right. Yeah. it, it demonstrates why Ethereum is exciting and the kind of interesting applications you can put to it. And it also is beginning to demonstrate that, that this concept of DAO that we started talking about, many of us in the space, started talking about in, in 2013, 2014, the Distributed Autonomous Corporation, the Democratic Autonomous Organization, all kinds of variations of the name. These things are going to happen. And now we're going to watch one. They are happening now. Now we're going to watch one. and Became a lot more real. (laughs) Um, And and it's also, I think, a, a great demonstration of a technological singularity kind of culture, which is that things are accelerating. That's what's exciting about being in Bitcoin and Ethereum and the DAO and getting involved in these things is that things are accelerating. I just go back and I think... I I made this little quip that ended up being a much repeated tweet and Reddit post where I said, dear senators, last time I was here, I explained Bitcoin to you. I have some bad news. We went and developed something infinitely more complex. And uh, I know you haven't even had time to to digest Bitcoin. So here's what a DAO is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, right. it's, like, it's like this idea that, you know, you look at what the regulators are doing and how slowly law and regulation is trying to catch up with even the basic existence of Bitcoin. And they can't even fathom where Bitcoin is going or has already gone in the last few years while they're writing these little antiquated, inflexible regulations like bid license and things like that. Meanwhile, Mm. Bitcoin's evolving, Ethereum happened, the DAO happened. Their solutions are being done incrementally on a multi-year snail's pace. And what they see as the problem space is exploding in their face in an exponential way. Because there's absolutely no way they can keep up with the technology. And just when they think they've understood one thing...
0: People have moved so far past it. That's it for this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Stay tuned for episode 297 coming up on Saturday, the 18th of June, where I rejoin Andreas and Stephanie for a discussion and exploration of the upcoming Bitcoin block reward halving. What it is, what it means, whether it matters and why. The magic word for episode 296 is contract. That's C-O-N-T-R-A-C-T contract. You've got until the 18th of June to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. This episode featured content by Andreas Antonopoulos and Stephanie Murphy, music by Jared Rubens, and editing by Adam B. Levine. Any questions, comments, or wild-eyed complaints can be sent to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.